Why don't we open our Bibles? We'll be in Acts starting in chapter 25 today. We have a long passage before us, so we're going to break it up into a few sections. And before we get to that, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather without fear of persecution, to pay attention to what you've said. And Lord, we ask that as we do this, you will continue to draw our hearts nearer to you, that this will not just be an exercise in sitting through a talk, but that you will meet us during this time. Give me grace to share what you want shared for your people to hear today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not a mechanic. There's some things I can do with my hands. Auto mechanics is not one of them, to an extent. I've learned my lesson the hard way more than once that when I think a problem is a certain problem and I go about it, I usually end up wasting money and not solving the problem. So I've learned to let those kind of issues be dealt with by people with more experience and knowledge. One time, as we were driving down the mountains in near Boone, North Carolina, the front end of our van started do -do 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 shaking all over the place. The steering wheels couldn't keep it still, and so I slowed it down, okay. And then going down another hill, it started up again. We'd had this a few times before, but it was getting worse. So I thought, well, I know what it needs. It needs an alignment. So I took it in to get an alignment, and the mechanic said, no, you need a whole front end. Everything's out of whack. And see here, there's all this play in the front bearing, and you need this tie rod and this pitman arm, and you need $1,800 worth of repairs, and I need to leave town that day with my family. Well, as it turned out, um, it was the wheel hub was the main problem. We were able to get it fixed that day and put off the rest of the work. And the van drove like it was new. In the process, I realized that um, we had been dealing with symptoms of this problem for years, and I had mentioned to Paul Cochran a while back, do you know what it might be? And he said, yeah, it sounds like it might be a, a bearing. Or I said, I don't think that's it. And it turns out it was. So reinforcing, I'm not a mechanic. But I did learn that at the center of the wheel, if something goes wrong, it can affect the whole vehicle. Everybody in that van felt it shaking side to side. What's at the center affects everything connected to it. The Navigators uh, Ministry is where Diana and I met and got to know each other. The Navigators have this diagram for their discipleship called the wheel. And at the center is Christ. Everything that flows out from it is connected to Christ. Your obedience is lived out in different ways, witnessing prayer, fellowship, the Word. At the core, at the center of what it means to be a disciple is Jesus Christ. As we look into the book of Acts today, as we hear Paul's defense before Agrippa, I suggest that we're going to hear that Christ is at the center of the whole thing. And that's what drives everything in Paul's life and ministry. And as we hear Paul's defense, I hope to encourage you to keep Jesus Christ the center of your life. Before we read the first portion, let's do a little review the book of Acts spans about three decades, 
beginning around the time of the, the death and resurrection of Christ, AD 33, 34, depending on what timeline you follow. And it ends in the early 60s AD. We're real close to the end of that timeline now. In AD, let's say 59 or 60, depending on where we point our references to. And at this point, AD 59 or 60, Paul has been in prison for two years. You remember he went down to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey to bring the offering and uh, the, the gift to the, to the Jews who were in poverty. And he was arrested in the temple, almost killed by the Jews, uh, then rescued by the Romans and held in custody until they could figure out what the problem was. While in custody in Jerusalem, there was a threat against his life and he was transferred from Jerusalem overnight to Antipatris and then up the coast to Caesarea. There he has remained in prison for the past two years. He had a hearing before Felix, if you remember, and Felix talked with him until he became alarmed, left him in jail. Then Felix left. Festus is the new governor. Festus has a hearing, couldn't come to a solution, and decided he would try to get Paul back up to Jerusalem, where Paul was likely to be killed again, or attempted to be killed again by the Jews. That leaves Paul to appeal to Caesar, and so Festus keeps him in custody. Today, we're looking at Paul having appealed to Caesar. Festus is still the one in charge of the situation politically, but he's looking for some answers, and so we meet a new leader, Agrippa, who's going to come listen to Paul once more. We'll read to begin Acts 25, verses 13 to 27. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them, that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, 
You see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. The message today, Christ the Center, again, is designed to encourage you to keep Jesus Christ the center of your life. So as we hear Paul's defense, this is our aim, to put Christ in the center. We're going to start by looking at the cast. You have probably seen older motion pictures where the credits are not at the end like they often are today, but you see the whole list of cast at the start. You get all, then you have to wait through the music. When's the movie going to start? So I won't take too long on this, but we're going to use that approach. We're going to build the cast from the beginning because the first chapter really just sets the stage for the defense. And in the cast and credits, we find first Agrippa, King Agrippa II, this is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you remember, was the king when Jesus was born, the one who wanted to uh, strike down all the children in Bethlehem. Then Agrippa II is the son of Herod Agrippa I. He's the one who we read about in Acts chapter 12, who killed James, the, one of the twelve, and was also struck down by the Lord. Agrippa, Agrippa II, was granted authority over various smaller regions around Galilee and Perea, and he was also given authority from Rome over the high priests in Jerusalem. So he could appoint high priests, he had charge of the temple treasury, the priests' vestments. So he was considered by the Romans the closest they had to a religious authority within their circles on the Jews. It stands to reason, then, why they would appeal to him for his input on a case like this with Paul, where it's largely religious questions. This Agrippa was the last of the line of Herod. Uh, after him, the Herodians are no more. And we meet him here with Bernice. We don't know a lot from this passage about her, but historians tell us she was Agrippa's sister, about a year apart from Agrippa himself. And she was not uh, known for her chastity. She had had multiple engagements, multiple marriages, and was uh, rumored to be living in an incestuous relationship with her brother Agrippa. She's here in the cast today. Festus. Festus, as you remember, succeeded Felix. He's the governor of Judea. And what we learned last week from Paul's message is that He's practical, he's prompt, he's not the procrastinator. But he admits in this passage he is not qualified to judge these religious questions. He says, I'm at a loss, what do I do? That said, he's also swayed by political pressures. You remember that he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He had the authority to release Paul, but he chose to put this uh, option of another trial before him. So he's a politician, uh, maybe a little bit more 
respectable in his conduct than Felix, but still swayed by political pressures. Felix is mentioned again, just as the one who left Paul behind. Remember what Festus said in 14? We, there's a Paul's case, there's a prisoner left by Felix. And that's all we know of Felix in this passage. These, he's the one who left Paul behind. If Felix would have acted, we wouldn't be here. But here we are, that indecisive, again, politically motivated governor has helped us to get to this point. We also hear of Caesar. His majesty, the emperor, is used twice in this term. And the Caesar at this time was Nero. He had been in power for a few years, and yes, this is the same Nero who would eventually begin wide-scale persecution against Christians throughout the Roman Empire. To Festus, Nero is the highest authority, and Festus' words about him indicate respect and submission. What do I write to my lord, the emperor? Picture the courtroom when Paul is brought in. It's not just Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, they also bring in these tribunes, these men of high rank. If we're w watching the credits, we may, may not have names, but there's this whole cast of extras dressed out in their best. It's an imposing scene of political power and prestige. And then there's the accusers. The Jews who Festus relates were asking for Paul to be put to death. In Jerusalem, here in Caesarea, the tense of the verb indicates that it was ongoing. They kept asking for this guy to be killed. They're persistent. Paul reminded us last week, it's been two years. They haven't let up. Their hatred continues. And in the middle of all this pomp and prestige and persistent animosity is the prisoner, Paul. He's been waiting for two years now. He thankfully had the right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, or else he would likely be dead by an ambush up on the way to Jerusalem or some other plot of the Jews. Two years he's been waiting. Two years he's been put off, ignored. How would you feel after two years of being falsely imprisoned under bogus charges? I'd be tempted to be very frustrated, angry, cynical, and I wouldn't really want anything to do with another hearing from people who don't seem interested in the truth. How will Paul react? But you know, we've left out the center of the cast. Did you hear it? In verse 19, Festus says, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. At the center of the cast of characters, he's not even physically in the room, is the crucified and risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Whatever Festus's shortcomings were, he hadn't missed the main point of Paul's message that Jesus had died and was alive. He had gotten that even if he didn't believe it. And so we see that even in the setting, even in the build-up, and all of the foolishness politically that leads us to this place, Jesus Christ is right there in the middle of it. If it weren't for Him, there's no conflict, there's no case. But we need to move on. It's far more than the setting of the case. Let's hear Paul's defense itself. We're going to turn our attention back to the Word now. 
and pick up in 26.1, reading through verse 23. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." Christ, the center, is the center of Paul's mindset. Let's look back at verse 2. My text says, I consider myself fortunate. That's a good translation, but it doesn't key you into the fact that the word here is the word that's used in many other places as blessed. The Beatitudes, blessed are you when such and such, including in Luke's 
edition of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and all kinds of evil say against you on account of the Son of Man. Jesus said you're blessed when you're falsely accused. Jesus also warned his disciples that they would be taken before synagogues and rulers and authorities. In one place it says before kings and governors. And here the Apostle Paul stands before Governor Festus, before King Agrippa. And did you notice what his mindset is? It's not what mine would have been, frustrated, angry, cynical, sarcastic. He says, I consider myself blessed. Jesus told his disciples that they were blessed under such circumstances. And here Paul models a stable trust in God that as he lives out the very situations Jesus told him his told his disciples they would experience he considers himself blessed in that context I love this picture of an obedient disciple in terrible circumstances because it's a reminder that if I'm going to have the mind of Christ in my circumstances, I also need to consider myself blessed, even if I'm opposed. If that's what Jesus says I am, then I must consider myself so. Christ is at the center of Paul's mindset, and out of that mindset flows the defense that we hear. And so we see that Jesus is not just the center of his mindset, he's also the center of his whole life. We can see this in some ways even in his past. Jesus used to persecute the saints. He refers back to his life of Judaism and he refers to his, his being on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. And he says, and I'm accused of this by Jews. Agrippa would have been acquainted with the teaching of the Jews. And there was widespread belief in a messianic end-time deliverance that was to commence with the resurrection of the righteous. So it was, although not all Jews, you remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection and some of the other supernatural elements, but Jews by and large did, and Paul says, this is my hope, why would this be a problem to Jews? He goes on to explain his past hatred, his persecution, his opposition to Jesus. But then he relates how Jesus transformed him at that vision. He saw Jesus in a vision of supreme light, brighter than the sun, he says. He mentions that Jesus, and this is the only place in, in, in Acts where he mentions this phrase from Jesus, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, which would have been understand, but understood by a Greek audience that this is divine prompting. This is not just a Jewish traveling preacher that you're talking to. This is a divine being. It was used in several different passages in Greek literature of gods getting men to go along with their will. And then Paul shows that Christ is at the center of his life's work. By relating Jesus' commission to him, Paul then gives validity to what he's been doing. See, Jesus said, I've appeared to you to appoint you and Paul says, I was not disobedient. Jesus picked him, and Saul, now Paul, obeys. Jesus said he would rescue Paul from Jew and Gentile, and Paul looks back and says, I've experienced the help which comes from God. Jesus told Paul he would send him to the Gentiles, 
and he would speak to the Jews. And Paul said, And I preached in Damascus and in Jerusalem to Jews and to Gentiles. We've just seen for the last several chapters, Paul's been all over the Roman world preaching to Jew and Gentile. Jesus' purpose is at the center of Paul's life and ministry, and specifically his purpose to bring messianic blessings, starting in verse 18, to open their eyes, light, to turn them from Satan to God, to bring them forgiveness, to give them inheritance among the saints. This is Paul's ministry. That's what he's working for. So he witnesses to small and great. He proclaims the repentance that Jesus told him to proclaim, to convert people, that they would turn to God and live in keeping with repentance. This is Paul's ministry, to proclaim what the prophets said, that the Messiah would suffer and that he would rise from the dead. To proclaim the Messiah's light to Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is at the center of Paul's mindset his life, and his ministry. And also, at the center of Scripture, Jesus fulfills the words of Moses and the prophets. And this is what Paul says is the reason he's on trial. Back in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seize me. For what? For his whole life and ministry in obedience to the risen Lord Jesus. That's what it's all about. The reason he's standing here giving testimony to Agrippa is because he serves Jesus. As he makes this defense, then we hear the interruption and move to the results. Let's conclude our reading of Scripture by moving from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So you see, after Paul gives his defense, we again find a variety of responses like we've seen in his preaching ministry throughout the book of Acts. We see mockery. Festus rudely calls Paul insane, which Jesus had been accused of being out of his mind too. But Paul responds, no, I'm not out of my mind. The words I'm speaking are true and reasonable, and that verb for reasonable is the same, the same verb that's used when Peter gets up and preaches, filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And so it's not just, it makes sense, it's also an indication that the Holy Spirit's speaking through Paul, just like Jesus said would happen, that the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that hour. So Paul responds to mockery with respect, gentleness, and truth. But others avoid it. Agrippa 
says, mm, you want to try to make me a Christian in a short time? He puts up another barrier. I need more time. I'm going to avoid the claim in my life right now that the Scriptures put before me. But Paul's not deterred by this. His purpose is to persuade everyone to follow Christ. And I believe that one of the benefits of the mention of his chains at the end is to finally, or to, to give added evidence to his sanity. Nobody wants to be in prison. I'm not a madman trying to get everybody chained up. I just want you to know Jesus is the essence of Paul's message. So whether it's mockery or avoidance, responses vary. The ultimate result for Paul in terms of his legal case is one more statement of his innocence. You remember when he was first uh, arrested by the tribune? I didn't find him worthy of anything for death or imprisonment. In our passage today, Festus says, there was nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. And here again, Agrippa says, this man could be set free. So three times we have a declaration from authorities in the case that Paul is not a guilty man. And yet on his way to Caesar, he goes. Why? Because Jesus is at the center of it all. I'm not going to rehash what Paul shared for us last week. Jesus said he would go to Rome. And so, at this point, the most important result for us to consider is not the result of mockery or avoidance that Festus or Agrippa modeled. The most important result from this passage is what result Jesus is going to generate in your life. Is Jesus the center of your life? I don't ask that rhetorically, because I know Christians, you're going to sit here and say, yep, at least that's my temptation. Yep, he is. No, no, what I mean is, some of you have sat here, and you've heard the gospel message countless times, and maybe you've let it kind of just bounce off your ears. For Jesus to be the center of your life means what Paul proclaimed, repentance, Conversion. Just sitting under preaching doesn't make you a Christian. Just singing the songs doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is receiving the free gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus died to give you. I speak to all of you here to remind you that Jesus can't be the center of your life if you haven't come to Him in repentance and been converted. So if there's anybody here who hasn't, come to Him today. He died for your sins. Repent of your sins. Jesus was raised to give you forgiveness. Turn to Him. Receive the gift of forgiveness. Jesus lives and proclaims light, so live a life that's worthy of His kingdom of light. I know many of you have been converted and have repented of your sins and live a life with Christ at the center. I want to encourage you to let that trickle into your thoughts in the deepest way it can. That when you are faced with adversity, you can say like Paul, I consider myself blessed because of what Jesus said. I don't have to see it. I don't have to understand why. But I know he said it. By putting Christ at the center of your life, of your thoughts, then it flows into the center of the purpose of your life. Jesus wants to proclaim light to all nations. So be part of it. Get up.
Get to work. So many of you give so generously to the cause of missions in this church. That's one way. Yes, give generously. And then let's look across the street at the lost around us. Let's be part of his work to share light with those who are in darkness, near and far, great and small. As you do, yes, some may mock, some may put off, but to the extent that Jesus is at the center of your life, you are blessed and will be blessed. So keep it up. If Christ is your Lord, keep up the daily walk of keeping Him at the center of your life. If you've never received Him, receive Him today and make Him the center from now to eternity. Let's pray. Father, I confess in my own heart that I have substituted other things for the person of Christ as my deepest desire many times. And I confess this to you, and I ask that once again, you will fill me with the joy and gladness of knowing Christ, my Lord. I pray this would be true for all who are here today, that whatever it is that is encroaching on our deepest desires would be put away if it's not Christ. Will you, Lord, help us to live lives of holiness in keeping with repentance that we will live worthy of the light, that all nations will one day hear of you and many turn and be saved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.